Welcome to the First NAS Podcast. This week, Pastor Paul shares from Genesis chapter 22 with the title of Abraham's Extreme Obedience. It's one of the most popular stories in the Old Testament. So let's listen in and learn today. Good morning. This is chapter 22 this morning, if you'd like to follow along in your own Bible. And before I get there, let me just give a little bit of housekeeping information. I typically do, during the school year, Thursday morning prayer at 6 a.m., and I haven't started up. I, uh, I do it online via Zoom. Uh, everybody's welcome. I will start that next week. And so, not this coming Thursday, but like, what is that? 11 days, something like that. So uh, just as a heads up that that'll be coming, if you like uh, a brief time, it's about a half an hour of prayer, we'll have more information about it and how to get the link to that Zoom meeting, and I'll be starting that in 12 days. And then I wanted to give a little teaser for what I will be doing on Wednesday evening. Uh, Reagan very generously said that I would be giving you a lovely sermon um, that's far from true. Uh, and Reagan, Reagan wasn't being deceptive on purpose. She's just kind. And so what I'm doing this, this fall, uh, I'm going to be working with Pastor Bill Carr. He and I are going to team up. Pastor Bill uh, agreed to do this and, and uh, to team teach with me. And then he left town for like a month. And so team teaching for the month of September is going to look a lot like me teaching. And then I, I anticipate that in October he's going to, you know, pick up the slack. And he's not here to defend himself, so I'll stop throwing him under the bus. But he really, he really chose a book that's pretty controversial and, and kind of scary to me. And, uh, and then he left town, so I, I'll stop throwing him under the bus here. Um, it, the book that we're looking at is from Scott Daniels, who was just elected as general superintendent in the Church of the Nazarene. He's written a book on the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And she, he, he calls the book the, the Seven Deadly Spirits. And the Seven Deadly Spirits talk about the distortions of, of God's good design that are found in the seven churches. And there are a couple of positive letters, and he sees the way that those positive churches have, have overcome something negative among them. And so in, in that, I'll just go through the spirits of boundary-keeping, consumerism, accommodation, privatized faith, apathetic faith, fear, and self-sufficiency. So if none of those uh, titles, like, trigger any, like, the hairs on the back of your neck and, and make you mad, you're welcome to come and join us on Wednesday nights and we will, we'll just have a great old time. This coming Wednesday, in just like, that's like three days from now, we'll be talking specifically about what it is, this idea that there's an angel of the church, that, that there is a, a spirit about a church, and what, what uh, Dr. Daniels really believes that is addressing when the author of the book of Revelation and the spirit speaks to, to the churches. And so we'll be looking at that. And that'll be Wednesday. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. I promise. Especially once Bill gets back. It'll be really fun. 
So I'm looking at uh, Genesis chapter 22. We, man, we come to the Bible like uh, week after week and we discover that, that in this book, there is life and light and hope. And today, man, I hope that, I hope that we come away with a challenge to live in, in light in a new and exciting way. We're looking at, this is the last sermon that I'm going to be preaching from the life of Abraham. I've been, I've been going through the life of Abraham for almost as long as Abraham himself lived. And so we're going to be, next week I'm going to start a series on, uh, out of First Timothy. And so I'm going to do some sermons from the book of First Timothy uh, this fall. And we'll be looking at that. But uh, the, the life of Abraham, he lived to like 187. And there's at least that many, there's at least a sermon a year in, in Abraham's life. And so I promise there's more material than I got to even. And so you're welcome. Uh, I, uh, I'm looking today at, I, I've been talking about the way that Genesis is written really to give some foundational truth and understanding of what God wants from humanity. Uh, and, and when we think about like before, before Abraham, early, early on, like Genesis 1, God does this amazing thing. He creates people in the image of God. Um, male and female, he, they created them, or he created them. Uh, God, God created people to bear God's image. I, I heard this lovely, this lovely analogy of that, that we are, we are like, when, when you step up to the mirror, you see a reflection of yourself. That image you see in the mirror, it's really there. It's really there, and it's really a reflection of you. And we... What God intended when God created people in God's image was that when God would look at us, it would be like, like he's looking in the mirror. And, and what, what looks back at God is this, it's this real image, but it's only real in so much as it, as it reflects what is, what is looking into the mirror. We've been looking at the way that God calls God people to to live according to God's plan. Like we our creator has this design and idea of who we would become. And I've been defining that idea in God's mind of who we would become as uh, the the Bible calls it righteousness. It is living according to the design that God put in us. When, when we do what God wants us to do, when we live the way God wants us to live, uh, that is righteousness. That is, that is fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. And, and Abraham is this beautiful example of fulfilling perfectly what God created Abraham to do by believing the promises that were delivered to Abraham. And Abraham has all these amazing experiences in, in his faith. And, and uh, today we're, we're looking at Abraham's willingness to do what God says in the moments when, when God's instructions seem almost contradictory, they seem exactly contradictory actually, to the promises that God had made earlier in Abraham's life. 
So uh, I've danced around the story. I, I haven't told the story of how Isaac was born. Um, Isaac, it was this promised child from God. 25 years of Abraham's life are spent waiting for the birth of his own son being given uh, by his wife, Sarah. And, and they waited, they heard this promise like 25 years before it happened. In Genesis 21, it's recorded. And in Genesis 21, uh, we, we read these words, the Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant and she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened just at the time the Lord said it would. This is such an amazing picture of God's like faithfulness to Abraham after years, two and a half decades of God saying, we're going to give you, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son through your wife, Sarah. Finally, it has happened. And the, the way that Genesis records it, exactly according to God's word, exactly what God said, God did for, on Abraham's behalf for Abraham. And, and Sarah has this baby. And then a little bit later in, in Genesis 21, Sarah is just giddy. She's giddy. She can't contain herself. She is effervescent. She is, she is excited with, uh, with how, how wonderfully blessed she has been. She can't contain her laughter. She calls the boy laughter, Isaac. Uh, it, it means laughter. Her friends looked at her, a 90-year-old mother with a 100-year-old husband, and they thought maybe Punchline would have been a more appropriate name for their child. But here he is, laughter. And, and we're left to assume that Abraham is ta as taken with the child as Sarah is. In fact, as soon as he's old enough to enjoy some meat, he throws a huge feast and invites the whole neighborhood to celebrate his joy at, at God's gift of having given him a son. And so it's understandable, it would be understandable if Abraham would be a little bit shocked when he heard these words that are recorded at the beginning of Genesis chapter two. At the beginning of Genesis chapter 22, we hear, sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. So it's really interesting, interesting to me that God chooses this point in Abraham's life to test Abraham's faith. 25 years, Abraham waited and, and honestly seems like more or less faithful to God. Like the stories of, of Abraham's disobedience and, and sort of faithlessness, they've really passed. And they're, they're a distant memory at this point. And here, Abraham waited 25 years. And now, now this is sometime later. Like I, I think it's possible Abraham's like 120 by this point. And, and so many of the stories that we've read of Abraham's life up to this point, he's been exemplary in his faith. He, he is the one who is counted righteous because he believes God. And, and that is like, that example of being counted righteous because he believes God, that's held up all the way through to the end of the Bible. It, for thousands of years, we look back to that exemplary faith. And here, 
like 35, 40 years after he had been counted righteous because he believed, God says, hmm, time to give Abraham a test. Time to, time to really see if this is, this is really real here. And, and you know, so it's, it's time to test his faith. And, and the Lord tests Abraham's faith by, by picking the precious fulfillment of the promise. He, he says, I want Isaac. Uh, and, and the Lord is like very clear that it's Isaac, right? The son whom you love. Yes, your only son, Isaac. Uh, you remember there was a moment when Sarah and Abraham looked at each other and said, we're just not going to have children. And so they took matters into their own hands. And, and Sarah gave Abraham Hagar, her servant. And, and there was another son that was born, Ishmael. And he's still around. Like he, he's still, he, his, he figures into to chapter 21. You can read more about him. He's still there. Abraham still has a soft spot in his heart for, for Ishmael. But when God says, I'm going to test Abraham's faith, he says, your only son, the one you love, Isaac. And, and so that kind of gives you an idea of, of Abraham's love and maybe the distinction between the, the two half-brothers. And, and you, you might expect to hear like some negotiation or some argument from Abraham at this. You, you would understand if, if Abraham would say, um, God, remember, you're going to bless the whole world through my descendants and, and through, through Isaac. Like, don't mess that up, God. Uh, we we, we kind of need, need to keep this one. And, and you might think Abraham would, would kind of try to talk God out of it. Uh, Abraham is old, right? Like, he might be 120 years old. He might just be, you know, he's not the spry 75-year-old that left Haran. Um, he, he waited, you know, so long. And, and so maybe he's just kind of lost some fight. He's just like worn down. Um, he's become a realist. He's become a realist that when he hears God's, God's voice, there's just like no, no arguing with God. Um, I'm going to tell you like not a very proud parenting thing, but when I, when my girls were younger, um, occasionally I would, I would have contests to see who was more stubborn. And it turns out I'm always more stubborn. Um, my wife would call, call these contests to see who's more stubborn. You know, I, I thought that it was a moment where I was like trying to, to really reflect that when I said something, I'm serious. And, and I thought that it was like, my girls will have to sort this out with their counselors later in life. But um, I, have a, I have a really strong memory, though, of like young, young girls, young girls, and, the, and, and uh, having a, a contest to see who was more stubborn with the younger of the two. And the older one just saying, Daddy's never going to give in. Just do it. Uh, I, I wonder if Abraham is just kind of to that point in life where he thinks the Lord, the Lord's just not going to stop. Like he promised that one thing for 25 years and finally did it. I'm not going to hear, I'm not just, I'm not going to wait 25 years of hearing God say, 
give me Isaac before I just finally do it. And so he, he says, all right, all right. And he, he immediately jumps into action. So we'll read how, how it goes here in, in Genesis 22. This is verses 3 through 10 I'm going to read for you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for the fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little further. We will worship there, and then we will come back right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. His his obedience is immediate. The next morning, Genesis tells us the next morning, Abraham wakes up, gets his donkey ready, gets the, gets the cast of characters ready. He chops the wood himself. Interesting detail. He chops the wood himself. They walk for three days, journey for three days to the place that the Lord has, has told him about. And, and then they leave the servants. Isaac carries the wood. I imagine that the fire is just like coals and a little bit of tinder. Uh, he carries it along with him. He has a sharp knife. The two of them go up to the mountaintop. It, it says he arranged an altar. He, he probably made what would look to us like a, a campfire ring, but bigger and maybe a little elevated. Uh, some stones put together so the air would draw through the fire and could get really hot. And, and then he arranged the wood on it, all of the wood, enough wood to build a fire that would consume a sacrifice. A lot of wood. And, uh, and we know there's probably like some kindling there on the top of the mountain because we're going to read about how there's a thicket close by. So then maybe he brought some of the kindling in and got ready for a fire. He, he built it so that he would just put the fire to it and the whole thing would, would go. It, this is a time-consuming process, right? He, he does all of that. And then he ties, ties Isaac. Ties him up lays him down on that. Like, there's no question what that's been built for. This isn't like, there's no question, there's nothing else that this has been built for. This has been built 
to consume the sacrifice. He, he lays the boy on it. And, uh, and he picks up the knife. Isaac's probably in his like mid-teens, late teens. Abraham's pushing 120. Uh, if, if Isaac didn't want to be tied up, he probably could have gotten away. Um, it, you know, Abraham had servants on the, on the walk there. He, they could have helped. But up there on the mountaintop, it's just the two of them. It's just the two of them. And I, I just, I can't imagine. I can't imagine the, the way that Abraham would have, have felt. Um, we get that short conversation on the way up the mountain. Isaac is putting the pieces together. Isaac's doing the math. He, he knows that something's missing. Abraham, Abraham appears confident. You have to wonder, what, were there tears in his eyes? Was, was his heart just like so torn up inside him? I can imagine so many different versions of the story. It's, it has to have been the hardest thing that Abraham ever did. Way, way harder than at 75 leaving his father's house, right? Way harder to take his son. It couldn't have been easy for Isaac to understand either. His father had told him the Lord would provide. And maybe he had just as much faith as, as his father Maybe he just trusted his dad that much. <laughs> Even as he was being bound, laid on the altar. And this, ha this is one of the defining stories from Abraham's life. Uh, the moment that God has given him his heart's desire, and then God says, I want that thing back. And so... He takes up the knife. He takes up the knife. And, and we read what happens next in verses 11 through 19. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied. Here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by his horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says. Because you have obeyed me 
and not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And your descendants, um, through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All because you have obeyed me. Then they returned to the servants and traveled back to Beersheba, where Abraham continued to live. The payoff's pretty interesting, right? I mean, Abraham, Abraham stays the course right up to the brink, uh, and the Lord provides another, another pass. I, I can scarcely imagine the relief. I can scarcely imagine how the exhale that Abraham feels when he hears the, the angel of the Lord call out. And you have to wonder, uh, <laughs> did they go home saying, man, that was a close one? Uh, Isaac was wondering what's going to happen on the next walk that dad takes with me. Uh, and you can imagine how, how this event would shape their relationship and, and shape each of them as individuals. It, from this moment on, he, all of Isaac's life, he's, he's pretty exemplary. He's, he is pretty faithful to God. He, he, his wife and his sons, you know, they've got their issues. But Isaac, he stays He's a pretty good egg. And you have to wonder if, if it wasn't this instance of seeing his dad's faith, of seeing, seeing his dad go to the very brink, uh, to trust, to give up even him. Uh, that, that kind of, and, and maybe this moment of, of God bailing him out too, in this last minute, that has to build some faith. Builds character, if not faith, right? I mean, it's uh... and Abraham in his in his relief, he recognizes the Lord's gift, the Lord's gift of another way, and he calls the place the Lord will provide. Uh, uh, some versions put a J there. Jehovah Jireh is another another way that that's pronounced. Um, the The Lord repeats his promise then, and it's and it's God's or it's Abraham's obedience that God recognizes and blesses. It's Abraham's obedience that is highlighted as the thing that, that God is so pleased with in this instance. You haven't withheld, you've done exactly what I've told you, you haven't even withheld your son. God, God sees, sees this as a moment when Abraham truly, truly lives out his, his faith, his, his willingness to depend upon God. Above all other things, regardless of, of situation, Abraham is completely willing. And, and the, the angel, so when the angel talks, it's twice it's mentioned, your obedience. Because of your obedience, your descendants are going to be a blessing to the whole world. And, and so uh, we, we think of this story in terms of, of Abraham's obedience his faithfulness, his trust in God. There's one more story that, that really highlights Abraham's obedience right at the end of his life that I just, I'm going to read this story because it's, it's kind of the, one of the most fascinating bits of, of this history for me. And it's, it's pretty mundane, but maybe, maybe it, it'll speak to you. In Genesis 24, I'm just going to read the very beginning, the first eight verses. Genesis 24 is a long one, uh, but I'm just going to read 
the first eight verses. It, it says, Abraham was now a very old man, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. This, by the way, this is after Sarah has passed away. Uh, he's, uh, he's just living. He's, the Lord's blessed him in every day. One day, Abraham said to his oldest servant, the man in charge of his household, take an oath by putting your hand under my thigh. Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not allow my son to marry one of these local Canaanite women. Go instead to my homeland, to my relatives, and find a wife there for my son Isaac. The servant asked, but what if I can't find a young woman who is willing to travel so far from home? Should I then take Isaac there to live among your relatives in the land you came from? Verse 6, no, Abraham responded. Be careful never to take my son there. For the Lord God, the God of heaven, took me from my father's house and my native land, solemnly promised to give this land to my descendants. He will send his angel ahead of you and he will see, it, see to it that you find a wife there for my son. If she is unwilling to come back with you, then you are free from this oath of mine. But under no circumstances are you to take my son there. This late in life story really grabbed my attention from Abraham's life because Abraham has obeyed so faithfully all throughout. He left his father's land. The only time he has left the promised land, the land that God told him he would give to him and his descendants as a permanent possession, was during the famine, a famine very, very early on in his sojourning. And so like he, he just went into Egypt real quick. He messed things up there and uh, he came back into the promised land. And, and for, you know, at this point, he's a very old man. Uh, I think he lives to 187, I think it is. Uh, but I, be, I can't, I might not be remembering that correctly. But, you know, basically like 100 years he's lived in, in Canaan at this point, uh, potentially. And, and he's, you know, he, uh, he's been faithful. <laughs> he's been very faithful. And you would think, you would think like it wouldn't be that big a deal for Isaac to just like, if he, if his, Abraham doesn't want him to marry a Canaanite woman. Like, really, would it be that big a deal to just, like, go back to, like, the homeland and just, like, find a nice girl and then bring her back? Like, that doesn't seem like it would be that big a deal to me. Uh, but then Abraham is so insistent under no circumstances. Like there is, there is absolutely no reason, there are no circumstances under which it is okay for Isaac to go back to her end, back to where my, I left my father's house. Do not let that happen. Swear to me, swear an oath that you won't let my son go back. He is so insistent on continuing to live into the promise that God had given him. Uh, it's really, it's really kind of captivating to me. God had called him to that place, and and he was no longer willing that even his child 
would go back to where God had called him from. So, in these two stories, we, we get what I think is an amazing picture of, of faithfulness to God and, and a willingness to, to do what God wants people to do, which is to believe and to trust and to walk, walk believing that God will do what God has said God will do. In, in the case of, of Abraham not even wanting Isaac to go back to Haran, it's, to me it's a picture of repentance. It's a, it's a picture of turning away from the things that God doesn't want in our lives. Like God calls us out of things occasionally. God calls us out of quite a bit, really. Like in our lives we, we hold on to things that God calls us to let go of and walk away from. And, and when we have walked away from those things that we know keep us from fulfilling God's purpose in our lives, we don't even want our kids to go back there. You know, I, I, it, there are people who are called away from, from anger, to let go of anger. And when they walk away from it, the peace they feel and the hope and the love that they feel means that they never want to walk back to that. They don't even want their kids to experience it. For some people, it's It's pride or their self-sufficiency. For some people, it's, it's lust and, and wanting. Uh, some, it's jealousy. For others, it's holding on to unforgiveness. For, for some, it's, it's a complete uh, finding worth in, in possessions and getting more. And when we recognize what God is calling us away from, and we put those things down, and, and we walk away, we find such freedom that we think, man, I never want to go back there. In fact, I hope none of my children ever go back there. As parents, sometimes we, we go like the opposite direction. Like we, we, uh, we become really legalistic with our kids in those areas. And, and we, because we recognize the mistakes we've made in the past. And, and we say, I don't want even my kids to, to repeat those mistakes. And, and we walk away from them. This morning, I would, I would guess that there are people here who are hearing God, like, say, you need to walk away from that. Like, maybe this morning, you're, you're hearing God say, like, that is not a, that is not a place where you can, can reflect my goodness to this world. If you continue to hold on to that, you, you need to walk away. You need to walk away from that, from that attitude. You need to walk away from Maybe it's a relationship or, or from, a, from unforgiveness. Uh, God calls us away from, from those things. And, and like, like Abraham with Haran, like we need to never go back. We need to be, we need to say never again. And not even, not even my kids should go back there. In, in the story of Abraham taking Isaac up on the mountain, though we, we get this picture, like sometimes even good things God asks us if, if, they, if they need to be taken away from our lives. I, have a, I just have a question. Uh, when I read this story, I, I wonder, it, Abraham had waited so long for Isaac. 
And Isaac was such a great promise delivered. I wonder if there's just a chance, just maybe a, like a, a small chance that Abraham had, had begun to see Isaac as, uh, as a substitute for his own faith. Like if, if now that I have this relationship with my son, like maybe, maybe Abraham was so, so intent on, on the, the fulfillment of the promise that he had kind of forgot the promiser and the giver of, of the promise. If, if Abraham had decided that having Isaac was just kind of like all he needed in, in his life now that the Lord had given him a son. Uh, frustratingly, an interpretation like that uh, uh, would kind of line up with some of what Jesus says. When, when Jesus tells us about walking away from even some good things in our lives, uh, when, when Jesus told, tells us there, there's really nothing we are guaranteed to hold on to, and, and he radically redefines family and home and security. Jesus, Jesus says anything that isn't faith in him has to take a backseat. Uh, sometimes those are good things that have to take a backseat. And then Jesus sets the impossible example to follow. Like the, the night before he goes to the cross to die, he, he gives up his position of authority over his disciples and he ties a towel around his waist and washes their feet. And, and then he gives his very life as an act of love for us. And, and so with Jesus as our example, we, we should... We should be careful when we attempt to explain away the way that, that Jesus radically redefines what is essential for us. We, when, when we think about bearing the image of God, then Jesus is our, is our perfect example. Um, Jesus perfectly lived a human life reflecting God's glory, being the, the image of God, um, loving others at, at this great, great personal cost, emptying himself, even of the good things in his life, to love others. And so today we're going to celebrate Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf and Jesus' love for us. We're, we're going to come to communion as a, as a meal and a means of grace, uh, giving us the, the strength and, and endurance we need uh, to, to receive from Jesus and to obey Jesus when he calls us away and out of the, the places we never want to go back to, and, and giving us the strength and ability and the vision to see how, how God could, could provide 
even when he calls us away from the things that seem like blessings. And so, we remember that Jesus ordained this meal, the sacrament, that it, it tells us of his life, of his suffering, of his sacrificial death, and of his resurrection. And it reminds us of the hope we have in his coming again. It shows forth the, the Lord's death until he returns. This is a, a meal, a means of grace, in which Jesus is present right here with us as we take it. And so it's to be, to be received reverently uh, and with gratefulness for the work of Christ in our lives. And so we invite everybody who who's truly repented and is desiring to, to put your faith in Jesus to, to take this meal to participate in Jesus' death and resurrection through it. We come to this table so that we might be renewed in life and in salvation and be made new by the Spirit. The church has proclaimed our faith, the simple three, three, phases, three phrases uh, for centuries. We believe that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So, let's pray. Our holy God, we gather at this your table in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the, the, the ways we remember Jesus at work, anointed to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ healed the sick, he fed the hungry, he ate with sinners, and establish the new covenant for forgiveness of sins. We live in hope of his coming again. So we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, gave thanks, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples, and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to his disciples, and said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we gather, Lord, as the body of Christ, to offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving. We ask that you would pour out on us and on these gifts your Holy Spirit. Make them for us by the power of your spirit, to be the body and blood of Jesus, that we may be for the world, his body, redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, Lord, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in the ministry of Christ to all the world, until Christ comes again in final victory. We thank you, God, for your presence that goes with us, guides us, and directs us. We thank you for, for your spirit that speaks now as we receive these elements to know what it is to be obedient to you this week in the LC Valley to be your church, your hands and feet, your followers, to know what you are calling us away from and where you are calling us to. Lord, help us to be attentive 
and receptive. So we pray in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the First NAS podcast. We look forward to seeing you in person at 1700 8th Street in Lewiston. Come join us.